I'm delighted to be introducing this podcast as we share some thoughts and reflections on living the present and navigating the future. I'm going to introduce you to three people who are joining me in this conversation. And I'm just going to start by asking them to say who they are and what they do. So perhaps, Hilary, we could start with you. Hi, I'm Hilary Ison. Uh, I'm ordained a priest in the Church of England and have been for a good few years. But recently I've been involved in a research team over the last three years, looking at trauma and tragedy in congregations. Um, and that seems to have become incredibly uh, relevant over this past few months in relation to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so that's what I hope I will bring as well as my experience over the years in different forms of ministry uh, and how we might seek to understand the kind of situation we're in at the moment. I'm based in London um, and I'm looking forward to being part of this conversation. Thank you. Thanks, Hilary. Hello, I'm Alex Kent and I'm the reader in cartography and geographic information science at Canterbury Christchurch University. And I'm also a former president of the British Cartographic Society. And I'm also very keen to think about how maps and society interact with one another. And in particular, perhaps how we're looking at mapping as a way of maybe navigating through this time within COVID. And really to think about some insights um, that we might gather from maybe the met that we use within mapping and also how that might inform how we perhaps handle situations like this now and in the future. Thank you. <laughs> I'm Ramani Leetard and I'm Christian Aid's Head of Asia. I've been working with Christian Aid for over 30 years. I'm a communicant member of the Church of England uh, and I have dealt with lots of uh, disasters and emergency situations, not least the current one. Thank you. I think we've already begun uh, the conversation because this podcast um, arose from my own reflections around this time of viral pandemic, this time of lockdown, how we're living the present and how we're emerging into an unknown future. And I've frequently found myself using the language of navigation, of landscape, um, as well as the language of trauma. And I found myself reflecting quite a lot on what might be learned from those who've been involved in disaster relief across the world. So I thought to myself, how good it would be to bring together a cartographer, uh, someone with experience of crisis relief, and also a theologian who's been doing lots of work on trauma and tragedy, which I know um, has already sparked lots of conversation, particularly amongst clergy and lay leaders. So we're just going to see where this conversation goes. And uh, Hilary, I wonder if I could um, start with you. And from the work you've been doing and where we are now, could you just give us a few, perhaps a few brief, over, uh, brief overview of some of the insights um, that you're bringing to this time we're living at the moment. Thank you. Yes. Um, I thought I would start with something that I found myself saying quite a lot, and I think other people have been as well. Uh, it, in these strange times, I don't know whether you've used that phrase or other people have used it with you. A lot. But yes. It seems to me to signify that we've, we're in a strange land. 
Um, and they're strange times, they're unprecedented. That's another word that people say is being a bit overused, but it is unprecedented. Except that I've just been reading Hilary Mantel's novel, The Mirror and the Light, <laughs> and I've just come to the bit where she's talking about the uh, social distancing <laughs> when the plague comes to court. And I suddenly thought, oh my word, I understand this totally differently now. <laughs> yeah. So. It's strange for our generation. We've forgotten that even our society had to learn this in generations past uh, when they had to only have so many people at court. Anyway, yeah, they're strange times for us, very definitely so. And some of the insights that I think from the trauma and tragedy um, study that myself and my other team members, Carla Groschmiller and Professor Christopher Southgate, have been learning about is that trauma, some of the characteristics of trauma are about um, our overwhelm, we're overwhelmed in the sense of our normal capacity to cope, and that our connections are broken, our usual meanings and understandings and assumptions about how the way, how the world works are broken, uh, they're shattered. You know, we thought life usually happened like this and suddenly it's not happening like that. We've got to find new ways of doing things. And it's also so that it's overwhelmed, breaks connections and we have a loss of control. Suddenly the world is outside of our control, although we are seeking to control it in some way or another in little ways. And it's a sense of having lost your orientation in the world. You know, I remember going into the sea, striding in with my bodyboard, and suddenly you get knocked over by a massive wave. <laughs> and you, you literally don't know which way is up for a short while. And it feels like that at the moment. You know, we're all struggling, having been knocked over by this tsunami of a wave, to know which way is up. Um, and one of the things that I've been thinking about is, it's, I guess Alex will talk a bit more about this maybe, what struck me with the medieval maps was when they came to the edge of the known world, you would see written dra at the sides the dragons and the ear be dragons. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel a bit like that at the moment with the charts that we do have for how people have charted trauma. Uh, there's a wonderful chart done by the um, Institute for Collective Trauma, um, Congregational Trauma and Tragedy um, in the States. And also it reminds me of the Kubler-Ross diagram of going through grief. You know, yeah. you get these charts when enough people have traveled a road for long enough you know, or um, we've charted our way through. So you get the stages of grief, you can get the stages of trauma, which I can talk a bit more later. But those are stages that follow a one-off trauma or a tragedy or a terrorist attack or a fire or a flood. And suddenly our map has elements of that now, but we're having to redraw that map. And we haven't done it before. So mm. how do we do that together? How mm. do we draw that map together now? Um, perhaps some of the elements are there from the map of what happens normally after trauma or tragedy. Um, so yeah, so how we gain a bit more control and orientation in our lives so that we can uh, feel that we're not totally overwhelmed. Mm. Uh, how we reorient ourselves, I think is a very interesting question. I'm looking forward to uh, exploring it with the companions along the way here. Thank you. Um, I might just uh, jump to Ramani first of all, because Hillary's just used that language of tsunami and the waves. And 
I guess that's something that you've had a lot of experience of uh, in your work with Christian Aid. And I just wonder, listening to Hilary and then your own experience, what what sort of insights uh, you have at this time? Yeah, I, I mean, talking about tsunamis, I was actually in Sri Lanka at the time when the tsunami crashed into our lives on Boxing Day in 2004. And at that time, I thought it was a huge calamity beyond imagination. And it was and rendered many of us numb with shock. And yet all that we speak about in the international development sector about building resilience and disaster preparedness um, has challenged us during the, the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, the months of lockdown, not just in the UK, but across the world, which has wrought personal community and economic devastation. Uh, it has brought change in all of our lives enforced isolation, loss of control, I think you spoke about that, fear of unemployment, and challenges to our mental and physical well-being. And these are not dissimilar to what people feel emerging from tsunamis, natural disasters such as cyclones, earthquakes, and trying to actually navigate a way forward. Um, and I mean, you were talking about mapping, and that's what we do. We kind of look to map what people's needs are, what people you know, are looking for um, in that time of need. So our needs assessments that we carry out are very much in the, in the vein of mapping. Um, and um, I mean, um, I'm, just, I'm just glad that I have a roof over my head, the ability to buy food, access to healthcare, even if the system here is under great pressure. Um, but this is not so for several of the communities that you know we encountered over the past years, where physical distancing and access to clean water to wash hands, which is deemed imperative in this crisis, are just not possible. Uh, for example, the crowded refugee camps on the Thai-Myanmar border, the internally displaced people in Afghanistan and Myanmar, the slum and shanty dwellers in Nepal and the Philippines, many of whom don't have a daily wage, to support their families, to stay safe, um, and are less resilient, less able to access healthcare, and will be less able to um, uh, weather the economic impact. And I am very conscious of Christian Aid's mantra, which says, we believe in life before death, and the fullness and abundance of life. So the natural reaction is to continue to stand with the poor and vulnerable through the crisis. I'll stop there for now and I'm mm. sure things will emerge. Thank you. And really important that as we have this conversation, um, we're seeing it from our perspective, but actually this is a viral pandemic across the world. And actually, uh, we might have time to get into all of this. We could talk for hours, but actually how this is impacting different people in different ways and how people will be mapping it um, in different ways. But really interesting, even at the beginning of this conversation, to hear uh, you, Ramani, and uh, Hilary use the language of mapping. Um, so that seems to naturally come onto uh, Alex, where that is your, your sort of professional role. What sort of insights have you had? And perhaps even as you listen to Hilary and Ramani, what are some of the insights and comments you would want to make as we begin this conversation, Alex? Well, I think something that really strikes me is the breadth of that metaphor. When we talk about mapping in general, um, 
there's a huge range of different types of mapping. If you look at mapping as an activity or as a process, there are resulting maps that come out of that that speak to so many different people and the different ways in which we use maps as well. And I think both really um, in terms of, well, the ways of mapping, both in terms of something which is, let's say we might call kind of hard mapping where you're trying to, again, as Ramani says, perhaps ascertain what the needs are of vulnerable people to maybe ensure that there's adequate infrastructure, that sort of thing, where you're wanting to understand what the, the physical nature of the environment is that you're navigating. So accessibility is very, very important for that. But also on the other side, there is, if you like, this sort of soft mapping, which is very much a kind of individual and kind of um, sort of rooted in an expression type of mapping where we really want to try and make sense of the world. So every map that we look at, we have our own individual way of interpreting that. And we, we bring our own experiences to the maps that we look at. And I think, again, very interesting that this, this sort of idea of a map of Mundi and when you get to the edge, this ear be dragons. <laughs> Obviously, you know, that's in a lot of people's minds when they think of certainly historical map and that sort of thing. But, but something that I've been struck by recently in looking at the the maps that people have drawn individually there's um arthur beaubois jude who's a uh, a french cartographer based in calais and i've been particularly struck by his what he calls a mapper mundi really where he's drawn a circle of a kilometer distance around where he lives and mapped everything within that circle and then everything outside of that is this white space so there's a similarity in terms of mapping the world if you like but it, when our worlds shrink as they have done during lockdown and we have this sort of very small space we're not able to go very far out of that then maybe we look at our own environments and our own places differently and how then we map those is also very very different and i think it in a way sort of leads to these two different perhaps perspectives on mapping one of um, mapping being as a story that, that we can use to sort of um, explain experience and convey experience, but also mapping as journeying as well, and the way that we can use maps to travel to places without physically having to move. And I think that's something very powerful that, that maps also offer us. So I think these two aspects, as you make sense of the world, um, are very, very important. And that, I guess we could both call those sort of soft mapping, but again, the hard mapping where we physically have to um, plot what is where in the landscape and in the environment so that people can understand how to move about and that sort of thing to, to actually help organisations. I think that's also something we have to put our faith in. So that whole link between sort of mapping and faith is quite important because mm -hmm. I think we, we have to rely on a map to tell us what is where. And sometimes decisions are very very important that are based on those maps so it's very important that we have that as cartographers we have that um, commitment to trying to be as truthful as we can because we know that people will have faith in in the maps that we make so mm. that they can get on and do mm. whatever make whatever decisions they need so i think there are mm. several several strands there but i think the whole metaphor of mapping is very very relevant one if we're thinking about navigating this post covid landscape Hilary, with some of the language that you've been using and 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 your work, as you've listened to Alex and Ramani, have things been sparked in you? Yes, I think the um, the zooming out and the zooming in, that kind of experience, uh, I think echoes what we've been saying. That um, when we map things, 
I think uh, we have to, well, we don't have to start, but it's important that we're able to locate where we are personally. And that's the zooming in, if you like, into the personal or maybe the soft mapping. I don't know if that relates to that at all. But, but, in, but that sense of, and one of the things about trauma is that trauma is not in the event itself. It's in how each person responds. And that can be very different. So the same event can impact people very differently. So in that sense, you have to learn to draw your own map, even though there might be a general map about how trauma works the zooming out kind of thing. This is what normally happens in a situation of trauma, but this is what happens to me, the zooming in. And you can only really know that because another thing about trauma is that it's mostly held in the body, not just the head, the head brain. It's very much held in a body experience and our bodies record memory that our brains aren't normally, or aren't always aware of, the body memory. Uh, the book by Bessel van der Kolk called The Body Keeps the Score is very much true about that. So therefore learning to read the map of your own experience, your own inner experience, what's happening in my body, where am I feeling the tension, what information is coming from within and learning to be present to your own inner workings that then become made sense of in the brain. So you work with the felt sense that's what we call the felt sense of your experience, that your brain then gradually makes sense of. And that's its sort of integrating process. And then by being present to your own experience, learning to read what's happening, you can then facilitate a group or a congregation to do that similar process. What's going on for us? What's our experience? How do we give a place to whatever's being experienced in this group? Um, you know, some people have had a good lockdown, others have had a terrible one. Mm. People who have had a terrible one might feel jealous or angry about those. But, but how do you enable everybody to speak mm. of their experience yeah. in a way that simply accepts it? Mm. Um, and, uh, so, yeah, mm. so therefore learning to map your own experiences, zooming in and then zooming out and being able to see the bigger picture. And as a minister or somebody who works with groups of people, how you facilitate them to draw their map as a group of their experience. I think it's really important. And that resonates with so much uh, that I would say that I've been experiencing in, in leadership yeah. here in the diocese, that one thing I said very early on was that, um, was that actually people seem to immediately operate at the extremes of their personality types and actually encouraging people to be aware of what's going on within us whilst me as a leader having to be aware what's going on within me and then the complexity of working with groups of people and particularly in worshipping communities where you've got all those personality types and different needs and the way people are reacting um, and then possibly responding but reacting to begin with and just being aware that each personality type and people's own experiences and story will put them into a different place in each present moment. I just wanted to touch a little bit on, I think, what Alex said about, you know, this big wide world, the global thing, and then you shrink back into, uh, and what struck me was the whole interconnectedness of uh, what we're experiencing. And I'd just like to take you to... Um, uh, Jamtoli, a refugee camp inside Bangladesh, where at, 
moment, 50,000 Rohingya men, women, and children are squeezed into a safe space after having fled across the border from Myanmar into Bangladesh, afraid for their lives. Uh, and they obviously thought this place, uh, desperately overcrowded, but while never home, was a place of safety for them. Uh, and with whole extended families sharing tents, latrines, with basic schooling, and as I said, uh, also healthcare. And it was always stretched even before the coronavirus, you know, came into being. And so I was thinking, sitting here in, you know, not necessarily in the comfort of our homes, because we are also suffering to a certain extent this pandemic. What security, what hope can we offer from where we are seated? Can we kind of extend our horizons beyond the conversations about our own situations of disquiet or disappointment um, and put ourselves in the shoes, say, of the refugees, of a refugee camp family? And I think we can, and people have this, you know, sort of, uh, 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 sort of demonstrated that they can, because for me, I think if we are the, the members of the body of Christ, then we can offer that kind of Christ-like being and share his being the way, the truth, and the life. We talk also about building back better. That's a, a concept that uh, lots of humanitarian practitioners talk about. But I'd like to think of it not just in the material sense, which we look at quite a lot, but looking at the trauma that people face. We also have to think about building back spiritual resilience and how we, how we, you know, how we actually uh, do that. Um, I'd just like to tell you a little story of a woman I met in, uh, in the south of Sri Lanka, a month after the tsunami. Um, she was a woman called Venita, and she um, was a fisherman's wife, and she um, lost, um, you know, she actually, with the day that the wave crashed into her house, she was swept away, she clung to a tree, um, and she watched from her vantage position, the sea, which had sustained her for many years, being a fisherman's wife, actually also claim her seven-year-old son's life. Um, and her, family, um, her family's life was turned upside down that day. A month on, when I saw her, she was sitting in this hot, humid tent. She was busy stitching school uniforms for children who'd lost all their clothes and their possessions. And talking to her, you know, despite her trials, she was able to speak very calmly about an unshaken faith. And I remember her saying, I felt the power of God and God loves us. Uh, and we must believe this. It is the only way we can move forward and keep hope alive. And that for me, that keeping hope alive, because that I think also breathes life. And, and then she went on to say God's love was revealed to her in, um, in, in the fact and was manifested in the security guard who actually rescued her from the tree. And she was paying back to her community. That's what she felt that she was doing, that she was paying back to her community um, uh, with the efforts she was making in sewing the school mm -hmm. uniforms. And I think to me that, that, that uh, focus on community is critical. And it's interesting, isn't it, in the conversation that we're touching both on the, the deeply personal and, and understanding ourselves, 
And that being such a key part of us being part of community. Uh, any reflections on what you've been hearing as a cartographer and a Christian, or as a Christian and a cartographer? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think something that's very interesting, that there's a lot written about cartography in terms of the process of map making, which, let's say, has focused on what is divisive, those that are in power wanting to perhaps control the environment, control other groups of people and so on through you know, colonial mapping initiatives and so on and so forth. But I've always looked at, at mapping as well as being a very positive thing and its ability to draw people together, particularly what, what strikes me about both what Hillary and Ramani have been talking about is this, again, this sense of community and the way that maps can be created to draw communities together because, of course, space perhaps or place is very much what people or communities have in common. They share that space, they share that environment. And so quite often it's a way of really forming identity of saying, you know, that the map kind of shows us the common areas where we are, where we live, maybe sometimes what our resources are and so on. But beyond that as well, perhaps it is a, a sort of expression of that identity of the community. And if we think about community mapping initiatives, quite often it's about getting communities to define their place, maybe the place where they live, work and so on, where they conduct really all of their um, livelihood perhaps, as something which is common to that community. And what I've sort of noticed in mapping, only recently in my own research I've kind of teased this out a little bit, but this idea of, of really maps carrying something of a message of hope. It's as if cartographers are mapping for a better world, there is something woven into the fabric of that cartographic language that I think is hopeful. And it's about perhaps something which is positive and that the world can be a better place. It's almost as if they're trying to paint a picture of what that world might look like. Now, we might be cynical and say, well, look, <laughs> in the worlds of, of sort of professional cartographers, you don't see too many people around and the, the, the sea is always blue. So it's always very idyllic. You know, they, they have these ideals, sort of aesthetic ideals. But I think there is something in the effort that goes into um, making that vision of the world real through the, the cartographic language, the particular symbols and so on that are used. And then that people will say, this is what the place is. And then this is how we maybe kind of mold the way we live and work towards what the map shows. I love these, um, the development of the idea of hope uh, that we've been talking about and, and building back better uh, and which both of which I think um, that Ramani and Alex have talked about um, relate for me to the, it's, well, it's, it's sort of the end point of the chart about what happens after a traumatic event happens. And you initially have the heroic phase when people leap into action and do the heroics. Then you have the disillusion and it dips down and people have to come to terms with this has really happened, this awful thing and no amount of heroics will change it. And then the rebuilding phase uh, and when people start to hold together, this has happened and yet there is hope and yet God is still there <laughs> and yet. And then the end point, well, it's, I say it's the end point, it's not really because there is no end to this map, <laughs> but it's called the wiser living phase. And I like that because that's the building back for me, but it's not going back to anything. It's actually that you would never have wanted this, whatever it is to have happened, whether it's this COVID stuff 
or whether it's, you know, the flood or the fire or the terrorist attack. And yet we are learning through it. We are learning more of ourselves, more of God, more of how he, uh, how we know of God's love in the midst of suffering. And it's been very interesting in the research that we've been doing. And I'm not the biblical scholar. Um, Dr. Meg Warner is, was our biblical scholar, particularly in the research process. Um, but she speaks about how much of our Bible, especially the Old Testament Bible, but also the New Testament, was uh, written after traumatic events. That our scriptures are actually robust, resilient scriptures because they are uh, written after the Israelites or the disciples had to struggle with trauma. Two things are key in recovering from trauma. One is normalizing that actually you're not going mad, you're not being wimpish in how you're responding. This is what happens to people in trauma. This is the kind of thing that happens. And so the maps help us locate ourselves. But also the one thing that makes the biggest difference in our ability to cope with trauma is accompaniment. We are made for relationship to travel this journey together. And that's what research shows. Mm. People don't have to have the answers. They simply have to just be prepared to say, I get it. Mm. I get this is hard. You know, yes, we can help practically, perhaps, but to be heard, for your experience to be acknowledged. And that's ultimately, for me, what our relationship with God is about, that enables us to keep that hope and to move towards wiser living, is that we know we are accompanied by God and by other people who are travelling this journey, uh, that we are loved and held, even if it's awful, what we're experiencing. And, and I think that, for me, takes us back to our identity uh, yeah. I repeatedly say that, you know, yeah. we are created to live in relationship with God and with one another yeah. and with all of creation. And I think this has absolutely highlighted that both yeah. in the places of loss and in the places where people have experienced um, the positive things. I mean, I, I don't mean that the, that the the events have been positive. There's nothing positive about COVID-19 but some of the ways people have lived in that, I would say what has been the most devastating and what has been the most life-giving have all focused on relationship. There's something about where we are in the present and, and we know as Christians that we've always been called to live in each present moment, but I think we've discovered that perhaps we haven't lived that very well in the past. And now we're absolutely having to live in each present moment and not making assumptions about what comes next. I found myself saying to so many clergy and lay leaders, don't give yourself a hard time about how you're living this because there is at one level no right and wrong. We have never, we in our lifetime, have never been here before in this country in this way. We've got things we can learn from. But actually, you are doing your best in each present moment. And, you know, hindsight's going to be a great thing. And we know that. And I guess Ramani could say something about that. We can all look back and say, you know, if we'd done that differently when the disaster struck. But actually, we have to deal with that present moment there and then. Um, it's interesting you should say that because some of the work around um, disaster preparedness and early warning systems. So, for example, in Bangladesh in 19, 
I don't know, 91, there was a, a cyclone which claimed 140,000 lives. Seven years later, when a cyclone hit, the death toll wasn't as great because they'd learned from the previous experience that if they did certain things, put certain mechanisms in place, then, you know, and, and that turned out to be all, you know, uh, help. I am reminded very much of the words of um, Oscar Romero, Archbishop of San Salvador, um, in his last words as he was gunned down at the altar when he said, the harvest comes because the grain of wheat dies. The earth allows itself to be sacrificed, to break up. Only in being broken does it produce a harvest. So I think what better hope for those of us who are fed and transformed by the dying and rising Christ. And I just wanted to bring another bit, which kind of, um, from Sri Lanka, which, is, which may kind of um, um, sort of uh, echo this. And um, it, it, it is what they call a lotus theology, is where the root of the lotus will grow again. And it alludes to the beauty of the lotus flower, which blossoms on the surface when the rain comes and when the sun shines. But when the monsoons fail and the earth is parched, the lotus flower dries and withers, but its roots remain until the next rains, allowing it to flourish and bloom again. And that's where I think the whole concept of hope sort of uh, kicks in. We keep uh, referring to the new normal. Now, this is a concept that I had come across many years ago in the Philippines when, because they were constantly devastated by typhoons and cyclones they kept referring to whatever emerged as the new normal. So it was, it was like when, when I heard it being bandied around now, it kind of brought back a lot of those memories. And, and there's something in all of this as, as we're talking that makes me think of seasons and stages. And even as we talk about uh, Christian crucifixion and resurrection there's about something happening and something else following on and and hope being being part of that and Hilary you you have spoken very powerfully already of, of some of the different stages of you know whether it be bereavement or trauma and we know that we don't go through those neatly but they're different things that um that that people experience even when Alex was talking about you know about mapping the very fact we're making sense and to some extent drawing lines and boundaries to help us understand where we are and, and where we're going it's not just a a sense I guess it goes back to what you were saying here about that that sense of being overwhelmed and actually in order to deal with that overwhelming sense we do break things down often into yes. stages or steps or into drawing boundaries in order to navigate things um, and I found that I found that very helpful myself, not just to think of it as one big, huge, overwhelming, but actually how we're living different steps, how I am navigating the landscape and drawing some of those boundaries and lines. This thing about moving it from one stage to another uh, in our understanding of where we are and what's happening. And we've moved, I think often at Easter, we move from crucifixion to resurrection. But of course, there's Easter Saturday. Absolutely. And there's quite a few books written on trauma and theology uh, that speak about the experience of Easter Saturday, that real experience of not knowing, 
of really not knowing what the outcome will be and living with that extreme vulnerability and uncertainty and loss of control and power, which goes back to what you were just saying, Bishop Rachel. One of the most um, powerful experiences for me in my Christian journey has been when I did my 30-day silent Ignatian retreat. As you come towards the end of that time, because um, you, you live and imagine the Gospels as you live those 30 days, there is a day when it's the tomb day, what Ignatius, Ignatius calls the tomb day, and you are called, you've, you've, you've lived the Gospel narratives of crucifixion, and then you go into tomb day, and you're asked to live it as if you did not know the resurrection was going to happen, how it would have been for those disciples. And I can picture that day, even though it was years ago, I did my 30-day retreat. The emotions I lived on that day was so powerful. And it meant that when I then lived the Sunday morning and was up early in the morning reading the narratives of resurrection, the, it was overwhelming. And in many ways, I think that's where we spend a lot of our lives, a lot of the time anyway, that we are living between crucifixion mm. <laughs> and between resurrection. Um, so I, I've certainly found that language of, of Holy Saturday um, extremely powerful. So thank you for, for bringing, us, um, bringing us back to that. Just thinking again about how maps and mapping in a way um, impose a sense of, or attempt to pose a sense of certainty. Um, and definition. It's very, very difficult as a cartographer to, in a way, show uncertainty. People have, have sort of debated this, you know, long and hard. It's very difficult to actually convey a sense of uncertainty. So maps tend to be quite black and white things. Now, either something is present or it's absent. And if it's absent, sometimes that says more than if it's, <laughs> if it's present. With cartography, basically, you are trying to define quite often very individual things, individual phenomena using a standard language, a standardization. And sometimes again, that can be quite limiting perhaps as well as something which is um, maybe trying to get across the individuality of mapping. But yes, that whole idea of certainty and definition, that's something quite inherent to, to mm. cartography. Want well, to return to that theme of, of hope that you've, you've all touched on that we've talked about uncertainty, loss of control. And Hilary, you took us back to the Psalms and so many of the Psalms talk about all oh, very honest, the outpouring of that sense of what people are feeling and thinking. And then there's often that line, and yet, and yet I will put my hope or yet I will trust in God. That, that sense of um, holding on to that hope. And and um, we've talked a lot about, interestingly, about water and sea. Uh, we haven't talked so much perhaps about ma mapping the land. And I loved Ramani's description, uh, painful though it was, of that mother um, being the wife of a, a fisherman. And this Sunday's gospel reading, um, Matthew 14, is that scene of the disciples on turbulent waters on Galilee and Jesus Christ walking towards them on the water and then being terrified. And I've been reflecting on how for the disciples, being on turbulent waters in Galilee would not have been unusual. 
the wind whips up the the waves frequently um, on the on the Sea of Galilee, and yet each time it happens, it doesn't make it any less frightening, and and Jesus comes walking towards them, um, and again that sense of community, and they're terrified, and then Jesus says, "It is I, do not be afraid," and what struck me as I've been preparing my sermon for Sunday is again that that identity that when Christ says it is I it is about knowing who Christ is and the resonance with Moses at the burning bush when God says to Moses I am the one who walks on the water is mysteriously connected to the one who created the water and as you were talking um about navigations we've used the language of tsunami and waves and fear and lack of control uh, there is something about here is christ who draws close and says it is i and stops peter whose faith is wavering at that point falling beneath the waves and there's something of that for me in that picture of hope as we navigate where we are now into the future we don't know what the future holds what i do find myself saying a lot hopefully not a glib way we do know how the story ends that the kingdom of god is here and the kingdom of god is coming and one day there will be no more pain no more death no more suffering and god will dwell with god's people but we don't know what that looks like and we don't know when that's coming or what our journey is um, now, but we hold on to that hope. So with that, I'd just like to give you the opportunity to, there might be a final comment uh, that you would each like to make. Something that I was thinking around, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, our economies are shattered and and we, we, maybe, you know, rather than thinking of a human economy of scarcity and, uh, you know, food insecurity or whatever, um, rather a divine economy where abundance for all exists. And, and, and as I said earlier, I think the catalyst for that is to be found within community. Something that I've been thinking about as we've talked today very much has been this idea of how we use maps in a way to think and feel certainty about the world around us and so maps kind of are a lens through which we sort of portray those values that we have as a society and what we see as something we want to be certain about and i think that it is very interesting as we as we do that that actually the world is dynamic it is it is always moving it's always changing and yet what we try and do time and time again through our maps is to keep everything still because that's what we want to be <laughs> we want to be certain about will there be a lens through which our maps actually maybe reflect a desire for community um, rather than just a desire to want to plot everything as it is through the trauma research to see the neurobiology that underscores that we are made for relationship yeah. uh, and without relationship we wither and die quite mm. literally mm. Um, and that that is the way our God relates to us through the simplicity of relationship in our present moment mm. and God comes to us in Jesus Christ 
in that way and reaches out to us and says, I get you. I know this is hard, <laughs> but I'm holding you. So I think for me, it's that sense of there is the big picture. And I, I, I do trust that, but I don't know what that looks like. And yet, just like Christ walking towards Peter on the water, because those disciples had a huge journey ahead of them. Um, but actually, in that present moment, here is Christ. And all the time, they even struggled to understand who Christ is and, and what that means. And it was gradual, gradually revealed to them as they lived that relationship. And, and as you say, it comes back to that living the present moment, that here is God with us. And, and we've all talked about the individual and in relationship, in relationship with Christ, in relationship with one another, because that is who we are created to be. And it's why I have so hated during this time the term of social distancing. And I refuse to use it. I will refer to physical distancing because the one thing that we do not want to be doing at the moment is distancing ourselves from one another socially. We are called to go towards one another in relationship as God comes towards us. So thank you. It's been a fascinating conversation and we could talk for such a long time. And there's a lot I will carry on uh, reflecting upon. But thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.